because he'll simultaneously just be playing dominoes with Seth. And then also, like, helping characters go on this really important spiritual journey. everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob. Welcome back. We're really excited to have you here for another conversation about another great script. We are excited today because we are talking about one of the American greats, uh, like capital G greats even. I think it, yeah. any, anybody could reasonably make a case for that. You've already seen the episode title, so you already know that we are here today with Mr. August Wilson, truly a American theater royalty. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Super grateful to have the chance to talk about his play today. Um, uh, we've 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 talked about August Wilson before on the show. We've talked about um, fences and piano lesson on the show, um, and really grateful to kind of be returning to another one of his pieces today. Today we're talking about Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Um, all of these plays, I'm stealing a little bit from my context, but all these plays are kind of in a similar conversation uh, around his Pittsburgh cycle of plays. Um, so so excited to kind of continue to get to talk about um, uh, his his body of work and certainly the body of work around the Pittsburgh cycle. Yeah, and, and August Wilson is famous not just for the incredible plays that he wrote, but also his incredible championing of black theater in this country. And so it, it's always the case that when Jackson and I talk about a script, no matter who wrote it, we're talking about an experience different from our own. And that's all definitely true today. Um, but, but I think with this script, it's especially important for us to say that thing that we like to say sometimes, which is that we're we're speaking from ignorance on a play like this we are not people of color um and then especially with this play which is about finding an identity after slavery in this country uh we're we have just sort of one lens as theater lovers as people who read a lot of plays uh and as people who have you know enjoy august wilson's work to a great deal but that is not the only or the most important perspective to have on this play please check out some of the other great things that are being said about joe turner's come and gone it it's a great privilege to talk about works that have such a history on this show what we would call like a, cl- a classic work um, not classic in the sense of being hundreds of years old, but classic in the American theater tradition. Any of August Wilson's plays would. But one of the things that that means is that like other people have talked a lot and written a lot about this play too. So please don't let right. your engagement <laughs> with Joe Turner's Come and Gone end with us. Check out other voices and other perspectives on this script as well. Yeah, and, and when you do, if you want someone to chat about it with and you like this podcast and want someone to kind of extend the, or continue the conversation with, we'd love to be chatting about it with you. Um, we'd love to be talking about these this this play, whether you're going to go see it or you're reading it, such an impactful play, and we'd love to be an, an area that that conversation can happen in. Absolutely. Um, Before we get to our conversation, which we will start very shortly, we do want to ask everybody to consider heading on over to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. All one word, no hyphens, no underscores. That's where you can become a supporter of the show. There are several different monthly tier options for you to choose from. The the lowest tier is just a dollar a month, and even at that level, that is hugely helpful and beneficial to us. It makes running this podcast possible in a very real way. We love to do it. We've talked already this season about scripts that are very new, scripts that are highly 
symbolic scripts that are realistic, musicals, and then this, a real sort of seminal American piece of dramatic literature. Um, it's a great privilege to look at that huge canon of work, uh, that huge body of work that playwrights are putting out there. But it wouldn't be possible for us to do it on the podcast in this form without the support of those folks over on Patreon. If that's you, if you're one of the supporters and you're listening right now, huge thank you. You make doing the show possible 100%. And for those of you who aren't yet, just think about it. Check out the Patreon page. There's, of course, different um, rewards that you can look at as, as part of the Patreon system. But the biggest thing that we want you to know is that by joining that community, you become one of the people that make a show like this able to happen. So thank you to those of you who uh, support us. And now, back to the script. Here we go, jumping back into the script. Um, so so we've already done, as, as we've said already, we've already done August Wilson on the show, so if you're looking for kind of a full uh, context on August Wilson, we've done a full context on him before on the show, so head on over to one of the other conversations to hear the full context. But just to give you, we've already talked a little bit just about how important he is as a playwright within the American theater. Um, and, and also just like, the, so, so the plays that he wrote, um, especially these plays that are in the Pittsburgh cycle or the century cycle, um, are, are a kind of a detailed study about stories connected, connected to Pittsburgh. I believe all but one of the 10 plays in that cycle takes place within Pittsburgh and really focuses on, on the, uh, 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 the, the stories of black America. He's called kind of theater's poet of black America. So, um, this particular story today and Joe Turner's come and gone focuses on kind of the 1910s that decade. Um, so, so, uh, the, the plays kind of all occupy a variety of different decades throughout the century, the century cycle. Um, so, uh, our, but our conversation today is about uh, Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Uh, this particular play was first staged in 1984 at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut, and then it had its Broadway opening at the Ethel Barrymore Theater and ran for 105 performances. That was in 1988. Um, so uh, that and that production was nominated for lots of lots of Tony Awards, lots of uh, uh, various uh, like Drama Desk Awards and things like that. I believe it won two of those awards at the time of that original production. Um, I'm just checking again to be sure that I have that right. Yeah, Tony Award for Best Lighting Design, or I'm sorry, Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Play, and then it won the New York Drama Desk Circle Award for Best Play uh, at that original 1988 production. It had a revival in 2009, which I was going to say, you know, in recent memory, this play has been on Broadway, but I don't know that over 10 years ago <laughs> counts as in recent memory yeah, anymore. Yeah. Huh. Uh -huh. Uh, <laughs> but that production was also also nominated for just a slew of Tony Awards. It also won the two Tony Awards for Best Featured Actor in a Play and Best Lighting Design in a Play, but also had a number of other Tony Awards that it was nominated for. Um, this play continues uh, to be produced, uh, and and uh, interestingly, the the whole cycle of the Pittsburgh plays have been produced. I think the Goodman was the first theater to kind of do them all um, within a se within a season. So uh, continues to be produced, uh, and and continues to kind of open up the conversation into this particular moment in 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 uh, in in the kind of Pittsburgh cycle of plays. Um, also, just a note uh, for a little bit of context um, that that. Uh, about the play's title, the Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Uh, the song about Joe Turner is a pretty prevalent uh, a song in the play, so Jacob will probably refer refer to that a little bit in the synopsis. Um, it, it serves a pretty pivotal moment in the play. But also just the title of Joe Tur Turner is this kind of like almost pseudo-mythological individual um, that talks about a very real problem that was happening in 1900s of like the, the kind of early 1900s. This, this character of Joe Turner is this person who goes out and finds uh, black Americans who are um, uh, kind of still reeling from uh, the, the, um, the reality of slavery in America and uh, like hunts them down and puts them back into this sort of like indentured servitude labor. A lot of times this, this sort of uh, mythological character is kind of structured around uh, bringing people back into slavery. So Joe Turner's come and gone illegally, is this illegally um, because illegally. it's notable. I mean, slavery is now illegal in the country. And so Joe Turner is this figure that illegally enslaves African-American people again. 
Yeah, a lot of connections to kind of like the penal system as well, like finding people um, and arresting them and forcing them into um, into this sort of indentured servitude. So that's where that some of the title of this play comes from. The mythological character or pseudo mythological character um, uh, isn't directly introduced in the play, um, but the song is, and so that's some of the context for the title of the play as well. Yeah, so the in terms of the sort of general synopsis of this play, um, this is one of the most ensemble-driven works in this August Wilson collection. Um, it does not have, in the same way that some of the other plays do, a real driving protagonist. There is uh, several characters who occupy a lot of our attention throughout the course of the play. So... I would call this a little less plot-driven even than some other August Wilson plays. This is a hugely character kind of moment-based uh, work, and it's it's profoundly influential for that reason to some degree. Um, the characters are all living together, by and large, there's a few visitors, but by and large, most of the characters are living together in a boarding house. This is a boarding house in that particular neighborhood in Pittsburgh, which August Wilson has set most of these plays and the neighborhood around which uh, the black community has gathered for a century, which is one of August Wilson's kind of central investigations across the place. Uh, so this boarding house is run by Seth and Bertha. Uh, the boarding house was owned by Seth's father, who was a free Northern African-American man and passed down to him. And now he runs it with Bertha. He also works you know, in the evenings, basically fashioning um, different kind of trade items. He's a craftsman. He's making dustpans at one point in the show, coffee pots, things like that, buckets. Um, and he discusses wanting to turn that into kind of a fully fledged uh, business owned and operated by a black man, something that he makes himself. Again, his boarding house he inherited and is trying to get a loan to do that, but everyone wants to uh, basically force him to take a second mortgage out on the boarding house in order to you know, act as collateral against the loan, which he doesn't want to do. Um, other people in the boarding house are Bynum, who is uh, uh, someone who's been there, I believe, of the current tenants. He's the longest tenured. Um, he is uh, he is someone that uh, binds people is sort of the way that he describes himself. He he has a sort of spiritualism uh, that is different than some of the other characters in the play. In the very early part of the play, he is out performing some sort of ceremonial ritual with pigeons, which is distressing to some of the other characters in the boarding house. Um, in the boarding house is also a young man named Jeremy. Jeremy is just kind of a day laborer who is also a fairly adept guitarist. And so he is out working, you know, I think he's building a road or some such that they say uh, during the course of the play. And then at nights he's going to play his guitar in bars and, and in competitions. And then, uh, then arrives to this group, uh, Harold Loomis and his daughter Zonia. And this is uh, very much so in, in a very almost classically structured way, the inciting incident of the play is the arrival of the new people at the boarding house. This is a stranger comes to town story to a lot of degree. And Harold and his daughter are looking for Harold's wife, her mother. And they have been for a long time, and that those travels have taken them all over. Um, and they have heard that his wife, her mother, Martha, is here in Pittsburgh, and they have come to find her, and they're going to stay at the boarding house until they do. Um, they are very cagey about their background, where they have come from, um, and too many details. He does say that he was a deacon at the church at one point. His daughter reveals in a way that maybe insinuates that we weren't supposed to know this, that uh, Joe Turner did him wrong at some point in the past, and that is what caused her mother, his wife, to leave. Um, now, of course, Jackson's already given you some uh, some info on Joe Turner, so you may already know what that might mean for him and his life, but it is sort of a mystery to the other characters in the play at some point. 
Um, other people come and go. Uh, there's a neighbor boy named Ruben who has mostly scenes with Jonia, the daughter. There are two uh, women characters who come into the house uh, besides Bertha, who lives and operates the house. Those are Maddie, who is, uh, he, at the beginning of the play, she comes to bind him to sort of, bind, he want, she wants her to bind this man who she's fallen in love with and who has sort of left her. And uh, Bynum in his, uh, I find it to be an incredibly compelling scene, sort of turns her intentions around from we're going to basically cast a love spell on this guy to you don't need him, girl. You can move on in your <laughs> life without him. And I just, I, I love that scene. It might be my favorite scene in the play is the scene between Bynum and Maddie. Maddie, after turning her attention away from this person who's left her behind, uh, immediately starts dating Jeremy. They go to these concerts at night where he's playing guitar, and eventually he asks her to move into the boarding house with him. Almost immediately after he asks her to move into the boarding house with him comes a sort of love at first sight character for him named Molly, uh, who has missed her bus and is going to stay at the boarding house until the bus arrives the next week. And the stage directions are like he immediately I'll, I'll pull up the exact language later, but he just like immediately falls for her after asking permission for Maddie to move in. And that causes quite a bit of comedy later on. So that's the general characters besides uh, the people finder himself. Rutherford Selig, who is a white man who comes into the home. He's peddling goods sort of up and down the river. And as he does that, he is finding people for people. Um, now, the trick to his finding people is that he also knows where they are because he took them there. He is transporting people up and down the river. And then when people start to go, where's my relative? He goes, I know where they are because I took them up there. And he uh, ends up charging the money. There's quite a bit of discussion about whether his people finding is a scam or a sort of properly run business about the history of his people finding, which is disturbing and horrible and goes very much back to the Joe Turner sort of world of uh, capturing runaway enslaved people. Um, so he comes in at the very beginning of the play. He's, you know, he's negotiating with Seth for some different goods that he's buying from Seth's little side business. Um, and then, uh, the, he, he talks with Bynum who is looking for the shiny man, a man that he met on the road at one point in his life and told him to find his song. Um, and of course, uh, Selig basically says, I, yeah, I haven't found the shiny man yet. Sorry. <laughs> I'll keep looking for you. I haven't found the shiny man yet. But Selig takes off, and at later that day is when Harold Loomis and his daughter arrive at the boarding house looking for this person. And so, of course, everybody goes, well, you got to talk to Selig, the people finder. He can find your wife. So a week goes by, and the people finder comes back, and Harold, uh, he sort of... Uh, pays him to go out and find his wife for him. Um, some of the other just sort of items of development at the beginning of the play, Jeremy has been arrested. I think it's very interesting, Jackson, that you made the connection already between the Joe Turner, um, you know, illegally enslaving people and the penal system in this country at that time. That connection is very much made by August Wilson with Jeremy's encounters with the law. And then later, Jeremy, he's forced to quit his job because people come around trying to get him to pay to keep his job. Um, very much the early economic and penal systems for black Americans were a descend, a direct descendant of the slavery system. Um, so Jeremy is coming back from jail. She, he, I've already described how he meets Maddie and eventually invites her to move in. Uh, Harold and Zonia arrive. Um, then a week goes by and Loomis uh, uh, shows up again. Um, I'm sorry, uh, the people finder Selig shows up again. Loomis tries to get him to go find his wife for her. This is when Martha and Molly show up. All of that really is the setup for one of the major probably more memorable scenes of the play, which is the Juba, uh, an incredible song and dance moment from the play where after dinner, after all these people have moved in, everybody I described except the people finder and the neighbor boy move into the house together all throughout the sort of early half of the play. And then they have dinner together on this Sunday night and they have this African song and dance moment. This is how Michael Billington, a reviewer for The Guardian, describes it. It's a hand-clapping, quasi-religious, ecstatic dance 
um, from which Loomis, this is, uh, starts to get some tension built. He's very much excluded from this. And out of this comes a, a vision that Loomis has that disrupts this whole party. And Bynum, being this sort of spiritualist, goes to him and walks with him through this vision. It's a hallucination of bones rising out of the water, his inability to stand, laying with the bones. And, and the act one ends with this moment and Bynum's getting sort, you know, trying to convince him to get up and walk. And Loomis, like, my legs won't stand. I can't stand up is where we end act one. As we head into Act 2, uh, Seth, who is this kind of no-nonsense owner of the boarding house, basically is talking with Bertha in the kitchen where they spend a lot of the play talking about the running of the boarding house and says he's kicking Loomis out. He doesn't like that kind of behavior around here. It's made him very uncomfortable. He wants him out of here. Um, and then... Um, there is they have a couple of negotiations with the other people in the play there's going to be too much for us to talk about as there always is but later in that evening um Bynum and Seth are playing cards and they're singing about Joe Turner they're singing this song that Jackson mentioned and Harold Loomis sort of finally unpacks his history which is that he and his wife Martha who he's looking for many years ago were married and had a daughter Zonia and just after that he was kidnapped and illegally held in slavery for seven years um, and during that time his wife left their daughter Zonia with her mother and went off into the north in search for some economic opportunity for them not knowing what happened to Harold so when he finally was able to escape that illegal slavery he went looking for them, didn't find Martha, but found Zonia. Now they're on the road looking for her. Um, there's all kinds of negotiations with the Maddie, Molly, Jeremy sort of situation of it all throughout the play. But <laughs> at the, in the, finally, at the end of the play, Martha arrives. Uh, she arrives, Selig brings her, find, the people find her, comes through, I guess, and brings Martha to the house. And she and Loomis have a, a really impactful reunion. I'm, I'm not sure it's exactly set out that their relationship is going to be just like hunky-dory back together going forward or anything. Certainly not. Uh, but Loomis has this kind of uh, a turning about. Martha tries to sort of bring him into her Christianity, and he very much mocks her for that. Um, and ends up actually cutting himself. Again, August Wilson is master of the visual uh, symbol, and this is classically that. Loomis cuts himself, cleans himself, cleanses himself with his own blood, um, and then this is at sort of the end of the play when Bynum realizes that Loomis is the shiny man that he has been looking for since the very beginning of the play. It's massively symbolic. It's massively um, impactful. And of course, just in those final three lines, Loomis says, I'm standing, I'm standing. My legs are stood up. I'm standing now, um, which is a, just a massive turnaround. Um, boy, that that's a lot, and that's only a little of it. So uh, these August Wilson plays are jam-packed with people on interesting journeys. And there's a little bit of those people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, as, as you've already said, there's just going to be so much in this play that we don't have the chance to touch on, given the time parameters and things like that. So, but I wonder uh, about a way to kind of jump into some of those moments and maybe like leapfrog around on them a little bit is to kind of focus on some of the aspects of this play that are, there's definitely naturalism involved in this play. It's definitely a slice of life sort of play in some ways, but it's also jam packed with symbolism, which is just a really interesting um, uh, dyad to have for this play, um, to have this kind of like, like really true to life um, attempt to kind of show a real moment in these characters' lives mixed in with moments like the ones you just described where where uh, Loomis uh, has this sort of very a very impactful symbolic um, uh, return of his song and his power to him. Also, all this song business is kind of running through the whole play. Uh, Bynum uh, continuously has this kind of song motif running through him. So this play is full of of this odd juxtaposition of both naturalism and symbolism woven really beautifully together to bring these characters' stories to bear. 
And I think I, I would go as far as to say there may not be a playwright who so effectively weaves those things together. This look inside the normal human operations of normal people. I mean, uh, Troy in Fences is just like a trash, he's just a garbage collector. He just goes and collects the garbage every day. Just normal people doing regular jobs and going in and out of their lives. And he so beautifully captures different lives in different decades. The, the regular problems they face, the, the incredible flavor of the fried chicken that Bertha makes, right, in this play. Just incredible life details, the simple, the, I missed my bus and so I'm stuck with this boarding house for the week. Combining that everydayness with an incredibly keen attention to highly symbolic situations, the pigeons, the blood, as you have said. I mean, it's, it's, he is a master at those things together. And I do wonder if his sort of unique lens into the world is the way in which powerful symbols are part of everyday life and go unnoticed. I mean, good grief. Fences ends with like the angels trumpeting, you know, Gabe pronouncing the the angels and, and Troy talking about seeing death at baseball. It's just across his work. There is, there is this prevalence of two things together that is just unmatched. Yeah, yeah. I love I love Bynum as kind of the central character that does that, basically. Holds both of those two things together. Because um, he'll simultaneously just be playing dominoes with Seth and then also, like, helping characters go on this really important spiritual journey <laughs> that, that, that they need to go on. You also, I mean, he's, he's also sort of this, like, pretty, pretty regularly, all these characters kind of floating through the boarding house have this sort of like, yeah, we caught them in the middle of something else happening, and, and we happen to stumble across them. Um, Bynum and Seth's relationship, though, has this sort of, like, these are, these are, time-tested characters the uh the uh the boarding house manager and and this sort of like spiritualist guide um and they you kind of get the the sense that you know the these people are showing up on their porch into their house and and you get you get this sort of like world that they've crafted together even though sometimes Bynum is, is on some thin ice with both Seth and Bertha um but but nevertheless it seems like he's kind of the the uh one of the the, the kind of core people of the house alongside Seth and Bertha. And he always brings this symbolic nature, this knowledge that there's something else going on underneath um, this slice of life realism that, that, that they're kind of, he's kind of constantly helping people tap back into. Well, he's an interesting character to talk about in comparison with the other residents, too, because, I mean, one of the features of setting a play in a boarding house, of course, is that you're going to get transient characters, right? If you're going to set a play in a hotel or a boarding house, uh, you know, or a college dorm or, you know, a train station or wherever, a place that people pass through, some of those to a higher degree than others, you're going to get a play full of transient people, which means, of course, you are set up for people looking for something or going to something or trying to figure something out about themselves on just like a thematic character writing level. Um, but Bynum is a previously transient person. That part of his story is so interesting to me. He used to travel the country offering his binding skill in a way that he describes that his father did with a healing skill. And that time has passed for Bynum. Bynum is old now. He's no longer transient. So he has come to the boarding house to live basically the rest of his life. And that's in just such stark contrast to the rest of the residents. Seth and Bertha, I'm not counting as residents. They're the owners. The rest of these guests, these residents, who are by nature only going to be there a little while. One after another, they have negotiations like, here's what you owe till this week. You can stay till next weekend. You've paid up for your food until Saturday. It's all, there's always a time limit for movement to occur to go on. Selig comes every week and takes people with him away. But Bynum is now a staple, is a feature. He used to be transient and now he's not. 
And if you think about like the transience and the way that this play is about finding identity, then you could maybe make the case that Bynum is one of the characters who's found an identity in this play and brings that kind of stable, this is who I am, to each of the other characters in scene after scene. Almost every character has a solo scene with Bynum at some point across the course yeah. of the play where he just like unpacks their life into just beautiful simplicity uh, about what's <laughs> next and what's what needs to happen. Yeah, yeah, the 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 the, the duality of of this is who I am and also you can depend on me to do this. <laughs> um uh, you definitely get that sense. You, I think you kind of get that sense with uh Maddie certainly like leads you on that road pretty quickly. You get the sense that the community at large knows Bynum is here cuz Maddie isn't it doesn't come to the house originally as a resident. She comes to talk to Bynum. Um, she eventually winds up as a resident as a result of her relationship with Jeremy, but but she's there just to talk to Bynum, <laughs> just to try to bring uh, bring uh, her, her yeah her lover back. So so you have this this uh, this kind of dependency around him, um, this sort of like I can I can trust you to some degree, which is interesting I think when. <laughs> W w held with Seth's sort of antagonism towards him. This kind of mostly, I think, loving antagonism. But the start of the play is Seth just yelling at, <laughs> yelling at Bynum, who's out in the yard killing a pigeon and kind of doing some sort of ritual out there and stomping on his garden. And Seth, <laughs> Seth has this like, this like open, open, almost comfortable antagonism with Bynum um, that, that is interesting held, held, uh, in tandem with the sort of like, you know, almost spiritual directorliness and, and care that Bynum shows uh, towards everyone else that he interacts with. Well, yeah. And of course, this is one of those places where the symbolic and the everyday are layered so beautifully by August Wilson, because who is Seth in a sort of symbolic uh, thematic sense? He is uh, an African-American person in the years after slavery who is trying to establish a self-sufficient industry and is running up against racism and structural inequality in doing that, but, you know, has this boarding house. So the key is the sort of economic way forward and Bynum is this, you know, brings this sort of uh, nomadicism, this spirituality, this uh, way things used to be to this boarding house. And there's better people to comment on the sort of historical reality of this, of this tension in the black community in the years after slavery than me, I want to acknowledge. So I, I don't want to say too much more about it other than that's it's a great place where this sort of begrudging friendship, this fondness, even through disagreement, is such a lovely character reality. At the same time, it's a deeply symbolic commentary about black life in America. And then to watch the watch the two of them uh, interact with Loomis, the stranger who came to town. Um, the, 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 the two pretty dramatically different responses of the two of them to Loomis. Um, you have, you have Seth, um, kind of right from the beginning. Yeah. He rents him the room just fine, but pretty much right away, as soon as Loomis is off stage again, he says, there's something about him that I don't, I don't like. There's something scary about him, something spooky about him. He thinks he knows, Seth thinks he knows, who Martha is that like, like he knows that she might be Martha Pentecost who goes to church down, down the road. But he's like, I don't know that I'm going to tell her because he looks scary. Like, I don't know that I trust him to go <laughs> and, and, and find Martha. Um, and then you have, uh, uh, Bynum who kind of consistently shows up to Loomis in some pretty intense moments. Um, uh, you have, the, the the dance that that Loomis crashes um uh, where where he kind of has this vision that he shares um uh, with the group and everyone else is kind of in in shock and alarm um Bynum is the one who runs up and helps him talk through that vision um you have this the second act as well Bynum is the one who slowly cajoles Loomis to a place where he's comfortable enough to tell his story to both Seth and Bynum you have Bynum again at the end having the revelation of seeing him as as the shining man 
man. Um, so so over and over you have the the two of them, and Seth continues throughout the play trying to push Loomis out the door. So it's interesting to see see the two of their friendship, and then to see it kind of pushed into how they interact with Loomis, who uh, kind of arrives on the scenes scene and occupies quite a bit of gravity and draws both of them into some sort of relationship with him. Well, and I think that's probably true for all the rest of the characters, too. The difference in Seth's interactions with them versus Bynum's interactions with them. But you pointed out one of the more interesting writing choices to me about this play. Because there is a version of this play where there is a question, a mystery throughout. And the mystery is, where is Martha? What is going to happen? Where is she? Can he find her? Is she even here? This character from the past in the wind. And I think, I mean, August Wilson does an incredible amount of work to make it clear that that is not the point of this play. Uh, you said that Seth thinks he knows where Martha is. I would say much more strongly than that. He comes down after having talked with Harold Loomis upstairs and basically says, listen, this is Martha Pentecost. Right. He described her to me. He's exactly the same person. His daughter looks just like her. This is definitely that person, Martha Pentecost, who used to live with us and who lives in this town over there, and we could go get her right now, <laughs> but I'm not going to. As a writing choice, that is fascinating because it takes away one of the mysteries of this play. This play is full of mysteries, but August Wilson takes that one off the table almost right away. The question of where is Martha is only a question Harold Loomis is asking. Everybody else, I mean, Seth blabs about Martha Pentecost to like every other character in the play. It's just like every corner he's like, that's Martha Pentecost, but don't tell him. And so it's like, well, there's only, there's only the mystery for one guy. I just think that's a fascinating choice to wipe away that mystery for us. And then it allows us to refocus our our intent on some other things. Like, wh why is Seth <laughs> like holding this information back from him? What is what is what is Loomis going through as well? The the Loomis is this really interesting character um, from from a reading a play sort of perspective because he's kind of in in just the words of Loomis, he's kind of this like sort of terse short lines um, uh, kind of in interjects quickly and then is kind of out of the scene. But a lot of characters talk about him um, and talk like say really specific things about him, describe his appearance, describe his mannerisms. Um, and so this is, uh, I mean, there's, and then certainly eventually Loomis has pretty significant monologue where he kind of unloads his story. Um, he has, of course, the big vision scene and the scene at the end. He's a, he's a character with a lot of, a lot of lines other than, than what I'm talking about specifically right now. But in those kind of opening sorts of first half of the play sort of stuff, he's this somewhat silent, ominous maybe presence that, that, that all the other characters are talking about, which is just a, a fascinating thing in reading a play to appreciate um, the the kind of uh, physicality that is called for as a result of that the 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 sort of high gravity nature of this person he 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 enters the room and everyone kind of like has an opinion about him just be just based off of lines like I want a room for the next week what's room and board here's the money I'll pay up next week I'm looking for this person something is being communicated and that's a great prompt for an actor to kind of uh, get to work with uh, I watched uh, some some reviews of of one production of this play and they they talked about how much gravity Loomis holds uh, on stage whenever he shows up in a scene how all the other characters are kind of maybe not talking about him but he's in their awareness most of the time. Yeah, I 100% agree. He is a character for whom his physical presence is as important for some reason as anything that he says. And there's even things as specific as like he's wearing a coat in the middle of the summer. Why is he doing right. that? And I think the neighbor boy, Ruben, talks about like, boy, that is a scary looking face. 
what is the deal <laughs> with that guy's face? And then Zony, of course, is like, that is my dad. So, you know, it's, it, August Wilson is, as a master theater craftsperson, knows that the stuff that happens live and embodied is as important ever as anything a character says the things that they do the presence that they occupy and uh, always is a fantastic writer of those kinds of characters who just show up and and are so outside the scope of the rest of the characters that they alter the gravity in the room. I think Gabe is very much like that in Fences. Uh, Just like things tilt when this character is, is in the room that way. Which is fascinating to go eventually to the, like two thirds of the way through the play where Bynum kind of makes the insight that some of that is due to the fact that um, the way he puts it is is uh, that that Loomis's song has been stolen from him, that he f- has forgotten his the song of himself. And what a what a powerful statement that is. And that's backed up again later when Loomis has this scene with uh, with Maddie and and has this scene where they they try to move towards being a little bit intimate with each other. And he has this revelation I've forgotten how to touch people. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so you, you have this sense that even that even Loomis goes through of this discovery that there is something lost for Loomis um, that, that is, is tangible, that is able to be felt by other people is able to be felt by Loomis. And, and so that, that's what makes that impactful ending all the more of a payoff is that from the beginning, people have been noticing that there's something missing from Loomis. There's something more, there's something different. Bynum's revelation that it's his song that is eventually returned to him through his own sort of empowerment of that final sort of ritual, spiritual moment at the end. Um, just a highly impactful character. Super, super great to kind of go on the, 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 the journey of that. Well, yeah. And, and, and so it, it becomes a sort of series of layers of metaphor, this idea of finding your song uh, is one that Bynum brings in, and then is is really played out, I think, through G- the Jeremy character, who who has his guitar and is sort of out there uh, trying to figure out who he is. I mean, all the characters, I think, many uh, people who have written and talked about the show talk about everybody looking for uh, looking for their song, looking for their identity, and then what Loomis brings into that maybe like normal world and I, I'm, I'm only saying normal in context of the play not ascribing that that's the way things should be or anything but this world of people who are looking for who they are looking for their song and Loomis comes and brings this additional layered metaphor of standing right it, it is the end of act one versus the end of the play journey Loomis has had his legs taken from him. His ability to hold himself up has been taken from him and taken by white supremacy, by the Joe Turner industrial complex, as it were. I mean, this this play is in a way that is heartbreaking and palpable about the lasting legacy of slavery in the United States on the black community. What it, it, the violence that was done and is being has been handed down to the generations. I mean, even someone like Seth, who who's the son of a free North person, um, is still, you know, he talks about how for every dollar he makes, uh, let me find the exact quote. He says, uh, white fellows come from all over the world. White fellows coming in six months got more than what I got. I mean, this play, this play is up and down tracks what was robbed. The time that was robbed, the, the financial resources that were robbed and also this like psychic spiritual soul level uh human robbery 
And and yeah, absolutely. That so so historically what was robbed, and then also these characters are actively going through that robbery as well. You have this the stuff you brought up in the synopsis around uh, Jeremy deciding not to give over fifty cents just to make I think it was seven dollars um, over the course of a week. So to, to, he had to keep his job. He had to pay in fifty cents for the week. Well, and remember um, you, that he was arrested when he was arrested. The police literally yeah. took his two dollars. Yeah, right after yeah, they they asked if he would he had been paid and he said, "Yes, I got money." And they arrested him and took his money. Um they they you have you have a Seth story of trying to start this start a, like a fully functioning business around his craftsmanship that is being blocked at every turn. And and the threat of like, "Yeah, I could mortgage my house, but like Th- that, like that's gonna work. I own this now. Um, like like the the kind of danger, the scariness of 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 having to remortgage and go into debt around the house again to try to make it work. You have all these all these characters kind of going through these moments. Uh, Jeremy Jeremy just has a lot. Um, like he tries to play music uh, around as well. He kind of tells a story about how he was cheated out of out of uh, kind of winning this guitar competition that he was in. So you kind of over and over here hear that echo again and again of how things are continuing to be stolen from these characters. Yeah, and and then I mean that's what's so powerful about the end of the play. And and to be honest, to me it's a little bit of an ungraspable power. Um there's just something unimaginably wow you know, uh, about the journey of seeing Loomis sort of self-actualize in these final moments of the play. And it goes a little beyond what I can describe from uh, this leads to this leads to this kind of plot development uh, reality. I want to read you the stage directions that are given at the end of the play because of their power and because uh, the way in which uh, Wilson combats the the legacy of slavery and and what he imagines as uh, the, the black community finding their own voice, finding their own song. So he's in this back and forth with uh, Martha about sort of faith, about whether the Christian faith is going to be the sort of thing that saves him from this pit he's found himself in. He says, what kind of meaning you got? What kind of clean you got, woman? You want blood. Blood make you clean. You clean with blood. Here is the stage directions. Loomis slashes himself across the chest. He rubs the blood over his face and comes to a realization. That's where the great line that I quoted in the synopsis, I'm standing, I'm standing, my legs stood up, I'm standing now. And then this, the stage direction, having found his song, the song of self-sufficiency, fully resurrected, cleansed and given breath, free from any encumbrance other than the workings of his own heart and the bonds of the flesh, having accepted the responsibility for his own presence in the world, he is free to soar above the environs that weighed and pushed his spirit into terrifying contractions. And at that point, he leaves and is gone. Yeah. Such an... Yeah, the, 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 the authority that he regains... Um, in in that stage direction, which again, powerful prompt for an actor to to get yes. the chance to work with. Um, uh, yeah, it, it absolutely is the punctuation of this script. And it, it's one of those punctuations that is simultaneously so effective and so unexplainable. I like <laughs> I, I have seen, just to be upfront about it, some criticisms of the end of this play for that sort of reason that I'm describing. It's sort of ungraspability. What decision is made? What choice changes? Why does it change? What's the relationship of the blood to that thing? And uh, I I don't exactly know why I disagree with that criticism other than I find that ending incredibly powerful. As a contrast to what August Wilson does with Loomis at the end of Act One, where the song and dance ceremonial ritual, incredible legacy history moment is going on that's so visceral and musical and powerful and that Loomis cannot participate in and is stuck outside of. Something about the contrast of that and his inability to stand in the vision and then his standing up and the the sort of... uh, power of the blood on himself and the standing there 
the contrast in those two moments is so visually, emotionally, spiritually powerful to me that it kind of overwhelms the fact that I am not sure I can quite explain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's this sort of like other thing happening that like it's hard to grasp onto. For for me, like a a road that, that I'm walking as I watch that moment is the juxtaposition of right before he's talking he's talking with Martha about Jesus's blood being the blood that covers and saves and and him covering himself in his own blood is this sort of like self-actualization realization of his own power again and through that um the the, the line uh the uh, song of having found his song the song of self-sufficiency self-sufficiency fully resurrected those two things together is such an is such an impactful juxtaposition of of Martha saying cover yourself with the blood of Jesus he says no i'm covering myself in my own self-actualization is such like i mean it's 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 this it's this um again intangible sort of like wow something incredibly significant is happening here um and it's intangible and it's powerful and it's awe-inspiring I a hundred percent agree. And I also think that's probably all the time we have. There's this play <laughs> yeah. because of its ensemble, uh, power, it, it is impossible to cover all the things in one, uh, you know, short hour. So we yeah, didn't even talk about things. Ruben. We didn't talk about <laughs> poor Ruben at all. We hardly touched on Maddie and Molly. I mean, we gave Bertha such short shrift. Oh in my this goodness. Conversation. I know. Molly just, has too, such too a great, always. <laughs> Yeah. There's such a great, just to give you a short window into Molly, she has a perfect scene where she ticks off every single person. <laughs> just it. perfectly. <laughs> where she just like says <laughs> the wrong thing to every person is like, oh, I hope I didn't offend them. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's perfect. Um, so, yeah, su- such a, Truly, such a great character. Yes. Again, a, a, another like, like a uh, stranger coming into the town of this house and kind of throwing off the normal patterns of what happens here. Absolutely. So uh, if we didn't cover the thing that you think is the most important thing about this play, we probably didn't. You're probably right. And so we it's it's one of the great uh, I don't know if it's a sadness, but it is like we just can never get to it all. And so we turn our attention to you out there for further conversations about the script. Yes, we would love the chance to chat with you more about Joe Turner's Come and Gone. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to talk about this play with you. Um, uh, Denzel Washington is kind of quoted as saying he is kind of like caretaking a number of August Wilson's product productions and trying to put them on screen. So there's a chance that someday, if this podcast persists, and and that 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 dream comes about that this play would be turned into a movie which would even like broaden the the ability to see this this uh this script as well um so so if you have the chance to uh see that movie someday in a in a some uh, a glorious someday or the chance to go and see a production on stage or be in a production or just read this script for the 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 wonderful script that it is we would love to chat with you on any of those sites you can find us over there Absolutely. If you've liked this conversation or any of our other conversations, please recommend us to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes scripts, conversations about stories and how they work. Send them our way. I think they'll like the show. They can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, Podbean. We're on all the places that you know and love your podcast, as well as you can like us on Facebook and a link to the new episode appears every Monday automatically and you can click and play from there until next week when we're back with another great script i'm jacob and i'm jackson thanks for listening to no script the podcast (laughs) 